Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Open international borders is what will allow the Australian university sector to return to something of its pre-pandemic position as a major educator of international students and a significant exporter in the Australian economy. But this looks like at least a year off. Uh, So what now that new enrolments are nowhere near what they need to be to replace graduating students? Um, Peter Hurley has been looking at this. He's Education Policy Fellow at the Mitchell Institute at Victoria University. And um, Peter, it's great to have you in the studio. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for coming in. Move closer, move closer. Look at this. I get to direct and everything now. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, post-budget, we know the federal government's looking to keep the borders closed until something like mid-2022. I mean, no one knows for sure. That's after the next election as well. I mean, what are you thinking when it comes to the university sector? I think, um, look, I think things are looking very good for the university sector. Um, I think one of the things that Australians have probably been used to seeing is this kind of um, massive drop, uh, you know, and and this massive uh, problem with the coronavirus last year and then a kind of recovery. When it comes to international students, that's not what's happening. Um, What's kind of happening is that there's this kind of slow kind of decline in international student numbers as students finish and new students aren't starting. Now, that's a big problem for universities because it's about, I think universities made about $10 billion out of international students before the pandemic, um, and that's drying up rather quickly. And there's not much support elsewhere within the universities that they can kind of change their business model to kind of attract you know, income elsewhere. So kind of what you're getting here is this massive problem with, um, with the universities. They're dependent upon international students who are dependent upon getting across the borders. The borders are shut because there's a health crisis. So there's this kind of like backlog happening behind this, this issue of closed borders that are affecting international students in our education sector. And as you've, you've written about in, in the conversation and elsewhere, there's obviously a flow on economic effect of international students not being in the Australian community, not spending money in retail and hospitality and, and that kind of thing. Um, but, but what about sort of going forward, let's say borders reopen in mid-2022 and we start to get back to some sense of normality in terms of international travel? Is there a real risk that universities won't be able to kind of tap into that market that they've really relied on in recent times to essentially survive? Yeah, so there's probably two things about that. First of all is the size of the international education sector. I don't think people quite realise how large it was. I mean, there were more there were about 600,000 international students inside Australia before the pandemic, and that's more than the population of Canberra. Um, since the pandemic, there's about, uh, I think, about 260,000 fewer international students who are, who are living here. Um, now, that's going to have enormous impacts on various you know, parts of the economy, where you're thinking about retail, where you think about property, not just the university sector. When it comes to kind of a, a, kind of a, a recovery, <laughs> the major issue that's going to happen is that it's all about the rate of return, because how quickly people can pass across borders is going to be really impact on whether or not that, that line, that kind of decline is going to kind of stop and start to increase again. So to put it another way, I mean, there are 150,000 
thousand international students, international student visa holders outside the country, just to process them. That's going to take that's going to take six months using Australia's entire hotel quarantine system. Like it's just not going to happen. <laughs> so even though those borders may open, there's this other there's these other issues that kind of come with that. How quickly can people pass between borders and so on? And this isn't just an international education issue. Any mm. any part of society, economy, families that rely on people and, and movement across borders are going to be impacted by this. Yeah, I guess it's concentrate. There's a concentration though that will affect the university sector. I mean, for families, it might be a few, you know, tragically a few family members that they can't get into the country, and hopefully that that will change soon. But with the university sector, it's whole classes of people, it's thousands mm. of of students. And I, I mean, is this part of why your predicting or I suppose your modelling shows that the biggest falls in student numbers are still yet to come for the university sector. Yeah, this uh, next year is going to be the, big, the worst year for universities. It seems pretty clear that that's, that's going to be the case because there's just, I mean, just, just think about it. Think about it in terms of, say, like a dam or a reservoir. Constantly that water is going down. The number of, of students is constantly going down as people are finishing and, and leaving their courses and so on. And usually there's a flow of new students coming in. But that flow has just been, that flow has been stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, and having some come in, that's great. Uh, <laughs> but it's not going to be enough to kind of arrest that decline. What does that mean for those universities that have really struggled throughout sort of last year and still at the moment as well? I mean, we know that some of those wealthier institutions did still manage to deliver a surplus, but others such as RMIT, I think, and Latrobe, who mm-hmm. really faced uh, a lot of challenges um, if the worst is still to come, what does the future look like for those types of institutions? I think it's, well, first of all, it's really important to point out that with international students, we've been using international students to kind of supplement the income that universities receive for about 30 years. Um, and that's worked really well until until this point. Um, I think in terms of the institutions, um, uh, look, n- not all universities are the same. Universities have different means. Some are, some are more well-off than others, have more reserves and so on. All universities rely on international students, and it's almost always the most profitable part of the business. Even small universities have quite a large international student population. So all universities are going to be affected by this. I think when it comes to the um, – I think it's a bit bewildering, actually, to see huge surpluses being prof- uh, being posted by some universities. But what I'd say to that is I, th- I think there's a lot of churn going on in the market. So, for instance, a lot of students might have, might have stopped. They might have um, uh, deferred. They might have gone down to part-time. They might have changed courses and so on. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's kind of manifesting itself in, 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 a, in a, it hasn't dropped off as quickly mm. as many people would have thought. But the trend is, is very strongly down from this point. So Yeah, gee, um, Peter Hurley's with us and he's an education policy fellow at the Mitchell Institute talking about the university sector and uh, really the challenges that they're facing now. But it looks like they're going to uh, be more before hopefully they're, they're less in the future. And I mean, you, you said there about international students being, you know, really important to the business model really of our higher education institutions some international students I've I've heard it reported many times felt like they've been treated like cash cows really is this a wake-up call with some of the ways that we rely on international students and or really are we are we just going to be looking at the economic flow-ons for this and and um not going to really resolve what what that feedback was from some students in the past. I mean, I don't even know if you believe that feedback about well, cash cows. I mean, I mean, it's such a huge industry, and I can understand. Yeah. The, I think what happens with international students, it's it's very often. I mean, it's classified as an export income, uh, or. Ex- 
Ex- yes, export income. Um, and so, I mean, we're all, we're all economic units in a way, but I think with international students, especially they're economic units. And I feel, I feel as if that's a bit of a problem because I think a lot of, I mean, I do work in a university and I have spoken to international students and I know how hard it was for them last year not to have those, that support, you know, and they make investments in their, in their um, future uh, like every other student and so on. And that's been really difficult for them. Um, uh, you know, they didn't ask to be overseas during a pandemic. Uh, I think that, yes, you know, the international education sector is going to look very different after uh, once this is over. I do think it will return in the medium to long term. It's a, you know, there's just more people who, who want this experience. They, they want to have a, an international experience. Australia speaks English. <laughs> it has a, English as its language of instruction, which is another kind of thing that, that, that's uh, in its favour internationally. Um, so Australia, is, you know, it's, it's strong in, the, in that regard. I do think it's probably worth thinking about how is it that we want our international sector to recover, you know, after this. That's in everyone's interest, including international students themselves. And in terms of the, the university sector more broadly, I suppose, there was some criticism that, the you know, government um, didn't uh, allow JobKeeper to, to be available to, to public universities and um, also in the most recent federal budget, I think there's a reduction in funding of around about 10% um, projected over the next three years. What do you make of the funding arrangements and, and the kind of mix of funding that universities might be looking for as international student numbers continue to decline over the coming years? Well, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, as those kind of surpluses, I suppose, from last year kind of suggest is that not last year that they that that support was needed. (laughs) It's going to be this year and next year and the year after. As part of those um, uh, supports and this kind of what they call the job-ready graduate policy. Um, there was, I think, about a billion dollars worth of research that was given to universities, but there's, there's nothing forthcoming from, from this point in. There are other issues, I think, happening with the, um, with the kind of, say, the youth labour market and, say, the Australian youth kind of uh, uh, decisions to study in certain courses and so on. I think there's an issue here around providing enough options for young people in Australia to study uh, in the tertiary space, whatever that, that wants to be. So to give you an example, the apprenticeship system has kind of been, it's received about $5 billion uh, through in, since the pandemic. And that's all come through employer subsidies, which is great. You know, that's, that's great for, for apprentices and so on. But apprentices are only about 5 to 10% of that youth cohort that kind of when they're making that transition from school to to, to, to the workforce or, or out of school. So kind of what's happening here is we've got, we've got it, it seems to be the mix might need to be looked at here because we haven't, it's not clear that we've got enough places for young people to go into university or to choose those options for themselves, you know, that, 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 that they want to study, whether that's at university or, or elsewhere. Oh, I mean, just to speak a little bit more about that, Peter, I mean, I hadn't really thought about it. Um, so you've got students finishing year 12 or, or equivalent, and then they're looking for the, the pathway in their early, you know, years in their early 20s or whatever, late teens. And so we've got some will go to vocational education and some will go to work and some mm. and, and university. So that mix at the moment, um, we might be seeing more wanting to go to university and that those places aren't there. Is that what you're sort of saying? Or? Yeah, kind of. And I think, I mean, if you look at, say, the trajectory that young people follow from, from school to work or into adulthood or whatever it is, is that there's, you know, there's generally a set of pathways that they, that they follow, whether that's apprentices, vocational yeah. training, university, straight to work. Some people don't go in anything they call not in employment education and training and i mean what's happening is there's just more people going to universities because it's seen as the as the as the strongest choice i mean if you look at australia's education system it follows the british model so it's kind of like we've got a very strong university sector apprentices and trainees and, and not much 
in between. Now, that's all kind of getting thrown up in the air, I think. Mm-hmm. I've been speaking to lots of you know, labour economists as part of this, and their, their, their fears with, say, any recession is that young people are the ones who are most affected by this. And you kind of see this already because there's fewer people who are employed who are aged between 15 and 24 who aren't studying. So this is the group that's making that transition outside of education into the workforce. So they're already getting affected here. So it's not clear that actually the policy that we're doing, the policy that we've got things set up is, is in their interests and helping them in, you know, to deal with this situation. Now, having said that, I think the enormity of what's happening with that international education sector is it's completely different. I mean, even if that was all set up, it's, it's not going, to, um, it, it's not going to, to stop the problems that university sectors are facing because because of the size of what's happened with the international student problem. Gee, I mean, there's just so much in there, isn't there? I mean, one thing with regards to like circling back to where we started around the international border, uh, are we seeing that um, students, you know, wherever, whatever country they may, may be originating from are favouring countries where the border is more open than, than Australia's border? Are, are we likely to see students choose um, a, a a destination because of that element? Is that a strong one versus, you know, I mean, I know our Prime Minister said that students will choose here um, because we've got a low virus load, but that might be so, but if you can't get in, I mean, that's another question, that's, that's isn't exactly it? That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the argument I think that was had at the start of this is, oh, Australia's, you know, we're gonna, they're going to want to study here because of uh, we've handled the virus. So, but this is one issue where that, that, hasn't, that, that, that hasn't happened. We are, you know, there's a forthcoming report by the Mitchell Institute on this issue and, and what, uh, we have been looking at um, uh, international students globally um, and what choices they're making and so on. And, and it's down everywhere, but it's, it's not down as much in places like the UK or, or Canada. One thing I will say about the the borders, one thing I find very interesting is you think about, say, you know, a lot with migration and migration policy and migration discourse, it's about security. So it's like, you know, how can we have the secure economic security? Are we getting the right type of migrants for our for our future economic prosperity? Whether it's political security, are we kind of importing, you know, radicals or, or something? Like that? That's just the debate that goes on with this. And I think kind of what's happening here is this uh, issue of biosecurity, health. You know, uh, you know, there's this threat and we don't know how to deal with it. Mm. Um, and we haven't come across this yet. And you can see this in the, in the debate. We're just not sure how to deal with this issue when it comes to our borders. And then that just has all these effects down the line. And international students are one of them. And uh, also, I mean, throughout last year and still universities have had to really change the way that they provide education, online learning and sort of digital tools have become, um, you know, much more ubiquitous across the university sector. Do you imagine that will result in, uh, you know, potentially international students enrolling in more online courses um, down the track? Or will that even be seen as an attractive option? I mean, do you know whether international students primarily come to Australia for the cultural experience mm. and what that provides as well? What might might that look like into the uh, future? I think, uh, the two things on that one. First of all, it's, uh, online learning has been around for a long time mm. and like, or it might have been called distance learning before, you know, it, there has been an increase in people going online and, and uh, you know, online learning from outside. I did a course in 1998, which was the first wholly <laughs> provided online course at one of the institutions. Like, that's a long time ago, isn't well, it? Well, that's right. And, it, and it's great. Distance learning, it's, 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 it's a wonderful mode, you know, that it, um, uh, I suppose it's I just, it's like it has been around, as, you, as mm. you're suggesting, for, for quite some time. And um, I think when it comes to international students and international student choice, like it's really much, it's really, really intertwined with the migration experience mm. um, there's and you know you could think about this in terms of history you know um, you know 
often education's involved migration. People might move from the country to the city or, you, you, know, uh, you know, the apprentice master uh, type of thing. I mean, that's a kind of migration experience as well. I mean, this is an international migration experience. If you're thinking about, say, a, an English language student, I mean, it's not just the classes. You know, they're there to be immersed in the yeah. language and, and so on. So I, I, I don't think that there has been, as I said, there has been an increase. Um, uh, the number, I think the number is about 17,000 um, international students signed up online in the last six months of last year, but normally that would be about 120,000. Mm. So that gives you a si- an idea of the size. And also, I mean, for vocational courses, it's not really going to work. <laughs> you know, so... Well, no answers here, but we mm. do have a lot of um, focus <laughs> on it. And I mean, that's what we need really to see how this plays out. And it is uh, a really big part of Melbourne, really, and even the centre of Melbourne. I definitely notice and miss uh, student life in, in the middle of the city. It's really visibly um, not there at the moment. Um, so we'll keep watching it. And it's great to talk to you, Peter. Oh. Nice to meet you in, in the Yes, flesh. thank yeah. you for having me here. It's, it's been, been great. Peter Hurley is Education Policy Fellow at the Mitchell Institute. And if you want to um, catch up with any of their work, you can head to the website. And it sounds like they've got some upcoming research uh, in their global space as well. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Uh, it's always wonderful to have Muriel Bamplett with us. She's CEO of VACA, the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency. And uh, it's especially exciting to have her with us today because it, uh, we are in the lead up to Reconcilia- Reconciliation Week, which starts this Thursday. And a uh, very good morning to you, Muriel. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, going really great. And uh, I mean, it's always really good to remind people about this week and this week in May and and about why it's so important because the 27th of May is um, when the, is the anniversary of the 1967 referendum. And then we've also got uh, National Sorry Day, which, which is on the 26th of May. And then Reconciliation Week ends uh, on Marbo Day, which is the 3rd of June. And so there's just so much happening in this week. I mean, how do you prepare, Mural? There must be so much for you to do. Um, it really is a time, I guess, for all of um, Victorians, I think, to come together. And, and, and I think it's not so much pressure on us. I think it's more about um, more Aboriginal people across Victoria now involved in their local government, in local businesses, in putting together a range of activities. And so I think it's really exciting when you look at the um, calendar of, of activities and see, you know, so many of our communities across Noondara, you know, which is in Achuka, across GJAC, which is in um, Gippsland, all doing things for Reconciliation Week. So it's really great that local government, local businesses, our government departments are starting to really um, engage with Aboriginal communities to bring them into the workplace to get, I guess, greater understanding of what um, reconciliation is truly about. Yeah, and, and uh, it's so great seeing all those events. Um, you know, I've had a look at your website and, and others as well that um, have listed all these different things that are happening um, over the, the next week and beyond as well. The theme for this year is more than a word, reconciliation takes action. So I guess about those sort of tangible, tangible steps that people need to take to really kind of push reconciliation forward. We know that it can sort of just be a buzzword, but I guess from your perspective, what does reconciliation look like, true reconciliation? Look, I think people um, see it as a once a week activity, but I think Aboriginal people and, you know, like Reconciliation Australia really promote the, the fact that 
um, there are many steps to reconciliation. And if you think about some of the big historical things, like the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, the Apology, you know, the Black Lives Matter even last week last year, the, the bridge walk, all of those things are, are practical steps in, you know, our work towards reconciliation. And I think if you think about other countries, the work that they're doing around reconciliation, it is a lot of, the, it is a lot of steps, It's a, you know, and Victoria, obviously, um, you know, we believe the truth-telling process is certainly a big part of that process as well. So I see that it's not only just doing the morning tea, but it's understanding some of the big steps that we've taken, particularly in Victoria, towards reconciliation. I'd love to hear where um, some of the, the processes and some of those steps are at Mural. I know you've been very involved, as have many people in Victoria, in, in, in treaty process and, and the truth-telling. Can you sort of update us on what's happening in that space at the moment? Yeah, and I've been also involved as well in the National Close the Gap. And so all those things, I think, start to look at, you know, Close the Gap is really about, you know, a lot of citizenship rights and, and making sure we have service system. But um, particularly, I think, um, the work that the Treaty Commission, you know, at the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria are doing really about both nationhood rights for the First Peoples of the country and citizenship rights. And so you would have heard that um, we've just established the Yuruk, um tr- Justice Commission, so the Truth and Justice, and it was established on the 14th of May. Um, Yuruk is a wemble, 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 wemble word, um, which means truth, and that word. Um, it, it, it is independent from government and the Assembly. Um, we believe it's a truth-telling process, and I think it's going to be critical, and it's, it's really, um, tr- you know, modelled on transitional justice from all over the world and looking at how do we actually get to the truth-telling and tell the true story of what's happened in Victoria and and, and be able to move beyond where we're at. And so um, we've got our first five commissioners. We've got Professor Eleanor Burke, who's the chair, and then we've got um, Dr a. Wayne Atkinson, a Yorta Yorta Judge, a young man, Sue Ann Hunter, a Rontree woman, and Maggie Waters, who comes from um, Tasmania, who's also a Palawa woman, and Professor the Honourable um, Kevin Bell. So a pretty prestigious lineup, um, and you know it will really start to look at colonisation, what's happened, the impact, policies, practice that led to the removal of children, um, all, all of those things, violation, massacre sites, all of those things. It's going to be very hard, I believe, for us to go through that process. But I do believe it's necessary because I think it is about truth-telling. It's about unfinished business. Yeah, it's it's so good to hear about progress, um, particularly with the Uruk Justice Commission, but also, I guess, more broadly on the move towards treaty or treaties here in Victoria. I guess looking back, um, you know, over uh, the past few years, as there's been this formalised process towards treaties in this state, um, what sense do you have about, I guess, sort of administratively that, that we've learned through that process that might inform other similar ventures in, in other states and territories or you know, of course, nationally in Australia? Look, I think Larissa Bayrent sort of sums it up when she said that, you know, um, human rights 
it's not about taking away anything from anyone else. And if you give Aboriginal people human rights, do you lose anything? And I think what we need to what we've seen in Victoria is the language change of government of self determination of Aboriginal people taking control. It doesn't mean that you know Victoria as a state or territory has, you know, um, has lost. Anything. It's actually um, now, you know, you see empowerment of Aboriginal people, and we're seeing, particularly, you know, like in the work that I do every day, we see that we're actually seeing better results for Aboriginal children. And I think that um, as a nation, and, and we've got mainstream organisations saying, wow, um, I think um, Aboriginal people have got the right answers. I think, you know, the Western system doesn't work. Um, for children. It doesn't work for Aboriginal children, but what mainstream is saying is it doesn't work for all children. So what do we need to learn? And I think that, you know, there are many things that we can learn from our First Peoples of this country. And I think, you know, um, all of the things that are on NAIDOC this year really are on, um, you know, traditional burning and care for the land and, and the importance of land. And I think those are the sorts of things that you look you know, many Victorians are learning about, you know, the first peoples of this country. Yeah, absolutely true. Muriel Bamflet's with us. She's CEO of VACA. I mean, we heard Muriel in, you know, we've had that budget period um, yep. in earlier this month and we did hear there's money for childcare and things like this. I mean, I'm, I'm just wondering how it, um, how you see some of the new funding and so forth coming into to families and into the areas of, of childcare in, the, in that sort of more formal sense, I guess, of, um, you know, care for when, when um, families are, are working or, or need that sort of early learning. Yeah, look, I think um, there's been an investment across many areas. There's been a significant investment this year, and so there's obviously government sees, and there's never ever enough money, really, because if you think about the overrepresentation um, of children in out of home care, and a lot of it has to do with the where how Aboriginal people live and the impoverishment, unemployment, imprisonment rate, all those things. But um, I think, you know, it's a step in the right direction in understanding that you need to be much more aggressive in funding where the funding can make the most difference. And so we've seen the government start to look at investment in early intervention and prevention, in transitioning for us, transitioning Aboriginal children back to Aboriginal care, in reunification and restoration. But across the whole of government, we've seen massive investment in family violence. We know that 72% of Aboriginal children come into care today because of family violence. So investing in therapeutic and understanding and addressing trauma is critical. But we've also seen massive investment in justice. So there's going to be a, a healing unit established in the women's prison at Deer Park. And so I think that's critical. We've seen an investment in education. I think the Minister and the Acting Premier is really keen to understand the role of self-determination in education systems settings and what he can do better for Aboriginal communities. And I think across all the portfolio areas, and I think it's really critical that we have the ability to, in, in order to tackle a really big issue of poverty, we do need to look at housing, homelessness, drug and alcohol, mental health and all of those areas. And I think a significant investment in mental health out of the Royal Commission is also, will also see a big difference in our Aboriginal community control organisations across the state. 
Yeah, it's it's really good to hear that, Muriel, because I think there's you know a lot of reporting about both the, the federal and state budget didn't really pick up on some of these issues and and drill down, I suppose, on some of the initiatives that might specifically relate to First Nations um, people in Victoria and across the nation as well. Um, just in terms of out of home care, I know that's sort of a big part of the work that you do at FACA. How are we tracking in that space? I suppose in in relation to um, Indigenous kids having uh, having access to relatives and sort of culturally safe environments when they are sort of out of their direct home environment? Yeah, look, I think um, I think Victoria's moved to transition Aboriginal children, you know, Aboriginal children to Aboriginal organisations. We're seeing a significant difference. We've now got 16 Aboriginal community-controlled organisations delivering out-of-home care across the state. So from my point of view, that's more Aboriginal people with Aboriginal eyes on Aboriginal children and knowing what's happening. Before that, um, FACA was predominantly the only organisation delivering child welfare. And you can't do that as a statewide, you know, with a very small footprint. Now we're seeing, you know, Aboriginal organisations running camps, doing cultural business, being able to support families and doing a wraparound support. And I think that's critical. I think as a nation we need to learn that Aboriginal families do need a a lot of supports and wraparound supports to break the cycle of poverty and I think that that's been a critical learning and I think the investment but we clearly have the highest over-representation. We know that we're tracking pretty well as far as um, placing Aboriginal children with Aboriginal carers Um, but I I think what we do know is is that um, we just have too many. We are performing probably worse than any other state or territory with the numbers of Aboriginal children in out-of-home care. And so it is something that we need to really sort of understand why are we doing worse when we've got the greatest investment, we've got probably the greatest, um, you know, I guess, um, controlled by Aboriginal organisations. And I think we just need to understand what's happening for children as they come into the system. Muriel, it's so great to have you on Triple R always. And uh, and I, I guess I, I urge everybody to look at what's happening for Reconciliation Week this year. There is just so much, as you said right at the outset of this conversation, there's so many different activities happening at the community level all over the place. Um, there's really just some really brilliant events and art projects and all sorts that you can get along to. So I urge everybody to have a look. And, um, yeah, I, I hope you have a great week as well, Muriel. It's great to have you on Triple R. Yeah, look, I really want to thank you for sponsoring the Morning Tea for Culture campaign. Um, it's been an amazing, your work's been, so helps us so much. Um, you, you know, you spoke about the, the work that we do, the cultural camps, the art mentoring, all those things are really important for us. And so um, we, we do want to urge more workplaces to, and, you know, schools and communities to, um, to get involved, have a Morning Tea for Culture um, and it can be as simple as having a cup of tea. And so um, I just want to thank you. I think, want to thank Triple R for everything you do for us. Um, you, you support us so much every day. So thank you very much. And couldn't think of anyone that I would um, love to have a cup of tea with more than you, actually, Muriel. So let's make <laughs> that happen too soon. <laughs> thanks, Muriel. That'd be lovely. All right. It thank would. you. Have a good week. You Bye. too. Muriel Bamplett there, CEO of VACA, the Victorian um, Aboriginal Childcare Agency. Look, I'm just mentioning one of her many hats. She's so involved uh, and we're actually just so privileged to have her insights on Triple R. 
A ceasefire between Israel and Hamas is continuing to hold after 11 days of conflict. The Israeli Defence Force launched a series of aerial strikes on Gaza, killing over 200 Palestinians and demolishing key infrastructure, while in Israel around 12 people are reportedly dead as, as a result of Hamas artillery. While there's been a spotlight on events as they have unfolded in recent weeks, there's also been a lot of attention paid to how the conflict is framed through the media. Words matter, and it's been the case for too long that the suffering experienced by Palestinians has often been obscured by a particular approach to reporting. For a conversation about what might come from this current ceasefire and the framing of these events, we're joined by Farhad Ali. He's a molecular geneticist at the University of Sydney and writer and advocate for Palestinian rights. Farhad, thanks very much for being there. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me on the show. Our absolute pleasure. And um, I guess first up, how have the past couple of weeks been for you? It's been a really difficult time for everyone in the Palestinian community. We're obviously hurting. Um, Many of us have family in Palestine, and the events have really been quite traumatizing to watch. Yeah, and um, I mean, it's it's you know it's been a really tragic thing to watch from afar as well, and also to try and get a sense of what's unfolding, um, you know, as reports have come through. What's your sense of, uh, I guess, the, the media framing of these latest incidents and how it, um, it reflects on on how you know the the region has been reported in recent times. My feeling is that media reporting on the events that are unfolding has for a long time taken a view that there are two equal parties in a conflict, that being Israel and the Palestinian people, where in fact we have what we be- what I would say is an occupying power with one of the world's ad- most advanced militaries um, raining down destruction upon a captive population. Um, Israel is widely regarded as the occupying power in Gaza and the West Bank by um, by the United Nations under you know international law. So when we when media attempts to report on these issues, it 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 very often distorts it because you don't actually understand or to a viewer who doesn't know very much about what's going on, it makes it sound as though the Palestinian people are actually on a level playing field, and they're not. Um, And that's one of the biggest issues um, in how we talk about it. For example, talking about it as a a conflict or Mm. two sides, um, when in fact it is an occupation. Um, And there are what I would say, and in the in the opinion of many human rights organizations, both internationally and within Israel, um, war crimes are being committed against the Palestinian people. And none of that, I should add, is um, meant to indicate that the actions of Hamas, for example, and the rockets being fired upon Israel are justifiable. But it does say that there's an imbalance in the power relations here. And as the aggressor and as the occupying state, there are responsibilities that Israel has towards the Palestinian people. And I mean, last week on our program, we had Jeff Sparrow, um, who's a, a writer and journalist, and he was talking about the Do Better on Palestine, really a petition or an open letter. Um, and it did deal with one of their points was around this both-siderism, they called it. Um, 685 journalists and media workers have put their name to that list. And I had a look this morning. And I mean, but did you, is your sense that media is doing better in reporting this conflict um, in, in 
uh, this month compared to perhaps other, you know, conflict in the past, you know, a decade or so or seven years mm. ago, or, or um, if, you, if you think back, Farhad? I'm proud to be a signatory to that open letter. And I would say that what I'm seeing is a real shift in the way things are being reported. I thought it was remarkable. Uh, not too long ago, we had uh, Sophie McNeil on the project mm. um, talking about the situation in Gaza. And she was very strong in her um, assessment of the situation, which she called apartheid. And that was the opinion of Human Rights Watch, Human Rights Watch which has just issued a legal opinion to that effect. Um, I think that we are starting to see a shift in the way that the issue is framed, and that's fantastic. Um, recently in America, we've seen um, on MSNBC, Ali Velshi's program, um, you know, very, very strong language used uh, in condemnation of the events unfolding um, and the, the almost indiscriminate attacks upon um, the Gazan population. Um, this is unprecedented, I think, but at the same time, there are some real problems that are yet to be resolved. Um, I don't think that the media ought to feel like it should have to walk on eggshells in order to talk about this. Um, I think we need fierce journalism that reports upon facts and doesn't act in a, in a certain way where, you know, you'll you're given a press release by the Israeli government and to report that as fact without, you know, Due journalistic integrity and you know the process of fact checking, um, really does a disservice not only to journalism as a whole but to the readership and viewership of you know the press at large. Yeah, it's a really good point, I think, and, and I've read some pieces written by you know Palestinian journalists talking about some of the real challenges they've faced when editors have sort of almost imposed this veneer of objectivity in a way over their reporting, which is really just literally reporting what's happening on the ground, which is, you know, supposed to be the stuff of journalism and, and reporting on truth as it's happening. Um, and, you know, to that end as well, having reports such as through Human Rights Watch and, and you know, calling it apartheid, um, potentially makes it easier for media organisations to use that language quite, you know, more freely perhaps when it's, it's deemed to be something that's um, that's been discovered by an external organisation. But I guess bringing us up to the present sort of here and now, um, Farhad, what's your sense of the ceasefire? Uh, it's obviously fantastic that um, we have a ceasefire in place. Um, I think it has been really difficult to watch as the death toll in Gaza climbs ever higher. So, you know, I'm, I'm very relieved that the violence is at a pause for now. However, it's really important to understand that the events that have precipitated, um, you know, much of the last two weeks have not vanished. Um, the violence um, began in a very large way with what's unfolding in Jerusalem, the eviction of Palestinian families from the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, and that's still ongoing. Um, there are real deep tensions between Palestinian citizens of Israel and um, their Jewish neighbors that have been inflamed in you know recent weeks by some extraordinary statements by members of the Israeli parliament. Um, and these tensions are not going to evaporate overnight. So although the ceasefire in place is a good thing, it's, you know, there won't be any kind of lasting resolution to this until we see some kind of um, move towards justice and um, an unwinding of the occupation. 
So there, um, and I mean, what what I was I was reading in in the media, um, international media, it was called intercommunal conflicts or, or violence. And is this something that is still ongoing? Then, Fahad, do do you have that information, or with the ceasefire, has that actually um, ceased also? I think a lot of that violence has simmered down. But I think it's really important to think about it in this way. Um, I'm a person of Palestinian heritage, and one of my best friends is Jewish. And, you know, even with so far removed from the conflict, the fact that, you know, this is all ongoing and some of this is being done in the name of, you know, um, the Jewish people worldwide, whether or not Jews, broadly speaking, consent to it, and many of them don't, and we're so proud to stand with them against the occupation, it still really brings, you know, that is still a sort of elephant in the room in terms of our relationship. So if you put, if you think about that, if that causes a strain on my relationship with one of my best friends, how would you feel if you were in Israel, a, you know, a, an Arab citizen of Israel, having to face discrimination in almost every avenue of life, you know, walking past slogans of, you know, people shouting death to Arabs. Or on the flip side, if you're a Jew feeling, um, you know, very much the same. Those tensions are being inflamed and they will continue to be inflamed. And much of that is coming from sitting members of the Israeli parliament. And that is incredibly, um, you know, unconstructive. And we're saying that that, those tensions are not going to disappear until there's some kind of change in the way that we think about these intercommunal relationships. Because I believe, and I think I'm speaking on the behalf of the Palestinian movement here when I say that we want to see a situation in which there's justice, democracy, and liberty for all people. And we're so proud to be a movement that says that we believe that Palestinians and Jewish citizens of Israel can live together in peace. And, you know, when we hear statements from, you know, Israeli ministers that say, you know, very much um, the opposite of what we're saying when we have the mayor of Lid, where very recently we had um, a lynching of a Palestinian man dragged out of a car by, um, you know, far-right Jewish extremist mobs, you know, that city hosted just recently, you know, a far-right extremist group that believes that all Arabs should be exterminated and, you know, removed from the country. So those tensions are being inflamed, and we think that's really, really irresponsible. Mm. We're speaking with Farhad Ali, a Palestinian writer and advocate and, and activist. He's also a molecular geneticist at the University of Sydney. And Farhad, I mean, based on um, sort of what's been going on here in Australia, there were um, demonstrations over the weekend here in Melbourne and, and elsewhere as well. You're obviously based up in Sydney. What's your sense of the broader community's response to um, these latest events and also uh, what we heard or you know haven't heard, I suppose, from the Australian government on this? I think that the Australian public has, over time, come to support our movement much more than they would have in the past. I think people are beginning to realise that what's going on is not justified. Um, when you have a situation in, this, you know, in which you say, well, we've got 
we de- desire a two-state solution and we're working towards peace, but then you have all these things in the background, so the, continue, the continued construction of illegal settlements in the West Bank, the continued occupation of the Palestinian territories, um, people begin to realize that, in fact, that may not be the right way towards a peaceful resolution. So people are seeing, you know, as, you know the, the, the situation essentially being static and are now beginning to realize, I think, in a way that they didn't in the past, that maybe the dominant narrative isn't entirely correct. Um, In terms of government, um, there are some wonderful people on all sides of politics who have been very supportive of Palestinian rights. I think that will continue to be the case. And I think that one of the strongest parallels I like to draw with this situation is to think about apartheid South Africa where the move to um, abolish apartheid was for a very, very long time a controversial sort of thing in especially the halls of power in the Western world. Um, and you had, you know, in the in the UK, for instance, you had a offshoot of the Conservative Party there um, wanting to quote, hang Nelson Mandela. Um, over time, that has completely changed and, you know, There's not one person in power who would say that apartheid in South Africa was a good thing. But that used to be the case. And I think it's almost not exactly the same, but to draw a parallel, I think that we've come from a situation of Palestine being a topic that's too hard to talk about to people coming on board. And um, I would really encourage everyone who doesn't know enough about the issue to, you know, get on board, um, you know, find out what's going on and to join us because I think that we're a movement for uh, democracy, equality and liberty for all people and you know, I'm so proud to be a part of that. Very great insights, Farhad, and it's, um, it's been so great to have you on Triple R today. Um, and I think that's an absolutely a good message to go out there and, and read more about what's been happening in the plight of the Palestinians at the moment, but also throughout history as well. It's, um, it's been a pleasure having you on Triple R. Thank you so much. Thank you. Fahad Ali, the uh, writer and Palestinian rights advocate, um, also a molecular geneticist at the University of Sydney, talking to us um, there about, um, of course, the ceasefire that's been in place for a number of days um, between the Israeli Defence Force and Hamas, but also um, his experience over the past few weeks as well. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.